Hello and welcome to Wangaratta Baptist Church. My name is Pastor Aaron. I'm so thrilled that you've decided to join with us today for this message. This message was recorded live at one of our Sunday morning services, which are on every Sunday at 10 a.m. right here in Wangaratta. If you're here uh, in town on a Sunday, then why not come along and join with us in fellowship with other believers as we open the word together and hear from the scriptures. But if you are connecting with us online, don't let this replace uh, coming to a, a local church. Uh, they are vitally important for the growth of all believers. And so get along to your local church. But if not, then, then at least help. let this be a supplement to help you in your walk with the Lord. And so we do believe that the, the scriptures are the inerrant word of God and they're here to train us and equip us. And so we will be speaking and opening up the scriptures together. So, so get your Bibles out and follow along. And I trust that this message that you are watching today will really encourage you and inspire you and help you understand the hope that we do have in Jesus Christ. May it be a blessing to you. Well, welcome back for the second week of Alpha as we explore more about who Jesus is. My, my experience with Jesus goes right back to when I was just three. My brother, who was four, was telling me about Jesus as a four-year-old does. And he asked me if I wanted Jesus in my heart too. Well, I said yes. And then he led me in a prayer inviting Jesus into my heart. How precious of a four-year-old. For a three-year-old. My mother was listening and, and watching on from another room with her mouth wide open, had to pick it up off the floor in disbelief and uh, yeah, quite a, a, an interesting thing she recounts to me. I have no memory of that but she has vivid memories and uh, not long after that my family moved to Sydney where my father studied to be a pastor at Bible College and he's been one now for over 30 years and I guess you could say I've probably gone into the family business. <laughs> anyway, so, so I grew up loving Jesus. When I was a teenager, I did question the foundations of my childhood faith and as I said last week, came to the conclusion that the Bible is true. Jesus does love me and he has saved me and has a plan and purpose for me. I've always been very impatient in my life. So I expected when as a late teenager that God would give me that plan and purpose immediately and then just tell me and like just line it all up, ducks in a row and just bang. Well, how many of us have had that experience? I don't see any hands. Oh, that must mean I'm not alone. Well, that's wonderful. That, that was my story. But Nikki, who wrote this series, had quite a different experience to mine. He says, I come from a family of lawyers. I practiced as a barrister for a number of years. My father was a barrister. My mother was a barrister. My sister is a barrister. My son qualified as a barrister. My daughter qualified as a barrister. My grandfathers on both sides were barristers. My uncle was a barrister. If we had a cat, 
it would have been a barrister. <laughs> now, I could have mispronounced it and it would have sounded very different if I had said barista, right? <laughs> but I didn't come from a Christian background. I wasn't brought up as a Christian. I was brought up as a barrister, not a Christian. And my father was a Holocaust survivor. Many of his family had perished in concentration camps. He was Jewish, a secular Jew. He would have described himself as agnostic. My mother was not a churchgoer, and so I didn't have any type, any kind of Christian upbringing. But I kind of did my own investigations just into the philosophy of life, and I came to the conclusion that I was an atheist, he says. And I was quite a vociferous atheist, very passionate about it. I wasn't kind of proselytizing. I didn't think that other people had to be atheists. I didn't go around trying to convert other people to atheism. But if anyone tried to convert me, then I had quite a lot to say on the subject, he says. And I was quite argumentative. And he says, I didn't really like Christians. I was very suspicious of Christians. I'd come across one or two of them in my gap year between school and university, and I was deeply suspicious of them. They had these kind of smiles. They're a bit odd, really, he says. Why were they smiling like that? It seemed, you know, like a, a bit like, a bit cult-like, and so I avoided them, Nikki says. I had a room next door uh, to my great friend, Nikki Lee. We'd been at school together, and we ended up in rooms next door to each other. And I said to him, Nikki, whatever you do, don't let those Christians into your room. They are dangerous. <laughs> but unbeknown to me, he had been thinking about it quite seriously. And one evening, he and his then girlfriend, now wife Scylla, came back and they told me that they had become Christians. I was devastated. I mean, they were such lovely people, I thought. What can I do? I've got to help them. I don't know anything about this. I'd better investigate. It was late at night. Nicky thought, what can I read? So he went to his bookshelf and found he had this old Bible that he'd had from RE, religious education at school. And that night, he says, I started reading it. I started reading Matthew's gospel. Started at the beginning of the New Testament. I just read Matthew, Mark, Luke. About halfway through John's gospel, three o'clock in the morning, I fell asleep. The following morning, I carried on reading. I read all of that day, all of the next day, all of the next day. He was a student. And so he says, I didn't have any work to do. And by the time I had completed the New Testament, I came to the conclusion, it's true. Nikki says, I didn't want to be a Christian, but I came to the conclusion, it's true. Why? What evidence is there for Christianity? You can't prove Christianity mathematically. You can't prove it scientifically. Science, of course, is very, very important, but science answers different questions to faith. Science answers the questions, when and how did this world come into being? What it can't answer is the question, who and why? Let me use a visual aid. I have here got a cake. 
Now, th this cake, supposing we send it off to top scientists around the world, now, they'd be able to tell you possibly what ingredients went into making this cake. They might be able to tell you all the molecular construction of it. They might even, if they're really good, be able to tell you when this cake was baked. But they wouldn't be able to tell you who made it, and why it was made? Well, the answer is, I made this cake. <laughs> I think it'll be an all right cake, don't you? So, so that's, that's the who, I made it. It's chocolate. It uses lots of cocoa and sugar and butter and flour and stuff. I even put sprinkles on it. So that's the who. What's the why? Well, I made it for a visual aid and for morning tea, um, but that's the why. So that, that's the difference, though, between science and faith. Science is very important because it deals with the scientific questions. But equally, faith is really important because it answers some very fundamental questions about life. And everyone has faith. An atheist has faith that there is no God. You can't prove that mathematically or scientifically. And those of us who believe in Jesus do so on the basis of evidence. Personally, I couldn't be a Christian if there was no evidence at all and you just had to blindly believe. I believe there is good historical evidence and that is backed up by my personal experience of God as well. You know, historical evidence is evidence. Scientific evidence is not the only kind of evidence. A lawyer uses what you might call historical evidence. Every time a jury brings back a verdict, they're doing it on the basis of things that happened in history. Evidence of history. And every jury decision is a step of faith. And so it is that we have to make up our own minds about Jesus. And that also is a step of faith. You know, I came to believe in God because of Jesus. It seems to me that the resurrection of Jesus, which I came to believe in, and we'll come back to this, strongly suggests that this world has a creator and that that creator is to be seen in terms of or, or through the lens of Jesus. And to me, it makes a lot of sense. You can't get to know someone unless they reveal themselves. No one can get to know you unless you reveal yourself. And if there is a God and he wanted to reveal himself to us, what would be the best way to do that? It seems to be logical that he would reveal himself in a way that we could understand in a human being like us. So what is this evidence? Well, first of all, what is the evidence that Jesus even existed? Some people say, well, you know, maybe Jesus didn't even exist. 
but there's overwhelming historical evidence that he did. No serious historian would suggest that Jesus didn't exist. We know from evidence outside of the Bible, outside of the New Testament, that Jesus existed. From historians like Tacitus and Suetonius. The first century Jewish historian Josephus wrote this about Jesus. There was about this time Jesus, a doer of wonderful works. And he then goes on to talk about the crucifixion of Jesus and his alleged resurrection. So there's evidence outside the New Testament. But most of our evidence comes from inside the New Testament. Now, of course, the New Testament was written a long time ago. And people say, how do we know that what we have here in our Bibles today hasn't been changed over the years? And the answer is we do what we call, and it's through science, called textual criticism. Essentially, the way, we textually, the way textual criticism works is like this. The more manuscripts you have and the earlier they are, the more you can be sure about what the original said. So the oldest fragments that you have, if they are the same as the most recent fragments you have, there's been no change over that gap, over that whole time period. So let me give you some examples of works from history and a bit of information. So we're going to jump onto the screen. Can everyone see that? Hopefully, good. All right, so Herodotus and Thucydides <laughs> were both written in the 5th century BC. The earliest copies that we have are 900 AD. And so there's a 1,300-year gap between when they were written and the first copy we have, and there's only eight copies in existence. Yet no classical scholar would doubt their authenticity. L Livy's Roman history, 900-year gap, 20 copies. Caesar's Gaelic War, 950-year gap, 9 to 10 copies. Tacitus, 1,000-year gap, 20 copies. Then we come to the New Testament, written between 40 and 100 AD. Earliest manuscript is 130 AD. And we have 5,309 Greek manuscripts 10,000 in Latin and 9,300 others. This is totally unique amongst ancient prose writings. One of the greatest ever textual critics, F.J.A. Hort, said this, In the variety and fullness of the evidence on which it rests, the text of the New Testament stands absolutely and unapproachably alone amongst ancient prose writings. And no secular historian would disagree with that. You know, the monks that used to take this very delicate and serious work of transcribing from one text to another to make copies before we had photocopies and everything, they'd do it by hand. If they got halfway through and made an error, 
they threw it out and started again. You think that how long it would take you to write the Bible and you get towards the end, you're in your Revelation chapter 19 and you make a mistake? Oh man, you'd be throwing that away and starting again. That's how serious they took their job. And that is why there's so much um, clarity and, and so little argument when it comes to the validity of the New Testament. And so we know from the evidence outside and inside the New Testament that Jesus existed. But who is he? We know he was fully human. He had a body, emotions, experiences. But many today would say, yes, he was a human being. We know he existed. Maybe he was a great human being. Maybe he was a great religious leader, but no more than that. To suggest he was the son of God, to suggest he is God, that's going too far. And so there are two parts to this argument. First part of the argument is what did Jesus think about himself? Because if Jesus didn't think that he was God, that's kind of the end of the argument. And even if he did, the second part of the argument is was he right? So what did Jesus say about himself? The first bit of evidence here is that Jesus' teaching was centred on himself. Great religious teachers point away from themselves. They say, don't look at me, look at God. Jesus, who personified humility, said, look at me, come to me. And the question of ultimate meaning and purpose, what is our life about? This sort of sense of what you might call spiritual hunger, this sense that other things don't quite satisfy, how good these things are, there's always this slight void, this sense that something is missing. John 6.35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. If you want that hunger satisfied, come to me. There's stuff in our lives that we don't like. I have stuff in my life I don't like. I have things and habits that I find quite addictive. Um, Jesus said in John 8, 36, if the Son sets you free, if Jesus, he was saying, if I set you free, you really will be free. Then there's all this stuff we carry around, worry, anxiety, fear, guilt. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. If you want peace, peace of mind, come to me. He said in Matthew 10, 40, if you receive me, you receive God. If you welcome me, you welcome God. He said in John 49, if you've seen me, you have seen God. You know, a little child was drawing a picture of God in, in class one time. And the teacher said, what are you doing? And the child said, I'm drawing a picture of God. She said, what do you mean? You can't draw a picture of God. Nobody knows what God looks like. And the child said, well, they will do in a minute. <laughs> Jesus said, if you want to know what God looks like, look at me. If you've seen me, you've seen God. 
And then there was his indirect claims. Jesus claimed to be able to forgive sins. He went up to people and said, your sins are forgiven. Now, of course, if someone offends you, you can't forgive them. Sorry, if someone offends you, you can forgive them and should. But, But you can't go up to some random person and say, your sins are forgiven. When Jesus did that, the lawyers said, who can forgive sins but God alone? Forgiveness, though, is at the heart of what Jesus came to do, to make forgiveness possible. It's at the heart of Christianity. Now, one thing I really struggle with the woke culture right now is that it's all about victimization. Assigning yourself to a victim group and then expecting recompense. There is nothing at all to do with forgiveness in that. It's actually built on the opposite. The heart of Christianity, though, is forgiveness. C.S. Lewis says, A Christian is someone who forgives the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in us. And then there were his direct claims. There are so many of them, but we haven't got time to look at them all. But I'd like to just just look at one. If you've got a Bible there, um, we didn't put them out. Sorry, they're not around the pews, but there's some at the back if you'd like. Um, And if you don't have your Bible, your own Bible, your own very version of one, you can either download the Gideon's Bible app or any other Bible app or take one with you today. They're our gift to you. If you don't have a Bible, please take one. And we're going to head to John 10. Chapter 10, John chapter 10, verse 30. And that's on page 1040 of those Bibles. And it's there that Jesus said this. He says, I and the Father are one. Now, that's a claim that's tantamount to to blasphemy in the eyes of people at the time. And they actually picked up stones and were going to throw them and stone Jesus when he said this. Jesus said, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any of these, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere human being, claim to be God. I think if you look at all the evidence, it's clear that Jesus did make that claim. And it's an astonishing claim. But of course, a claim like that needs to be tested. And really, if you think about it, there are only three possibilities. Either it was not true and Jesus knew perfectly well it was not true, in which case he was a fraudster. Or else it was not true and he simply didn't realise it was not true. He genuinely thought he was God, in which case he was deluded or we would say insane. But logically, there's only one other possibility, and that is that it's true. C.S. Lewis, one of the intellectual giants of the 20th century, and of course best known as the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, said this, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be insane or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your own choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else insane or something else or something worse. 
but let's not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So that's what Jesus said about himself. Liar, lunatic or Lord. They're the three options when it comes to thinking about who Jesus is and what he said about himself. He was either a liar, he was a lunatic or really his Lord. What he said is true. The second part of the argument, was he right in what he said about himself? What's the evidence to support his claims? And here's the first piece of evidence, his teaching. The teaching of Jesus is widely acknowledged to be the greatest teaching of all time. Just think about these for a second. Mark 12, 31, love your neighbour as yourself. Luke 6, 31, do to other people as you would have them do to you. Then this totally revolutionary, the first person in history to ever utter these words, Matthew 5.44, love your enemy. Jesus' teaching has been the foundation of our entire civilization in the West. Many of our laws were originally founded on the teaching of Jesus. We've advanced in every field of science and technology. Think how much we've advanced in the last 10 years in science and technology. Yet in 2,000 years, no one has ever improved on the moral teaching of Jesus. Do you get that? We've advanced in so many different ways, but no one has ever advanced in the moral teachings of Jesus. They're the greatest words ever spoken. They're the kind of words you'd expect God to speak. And this is the first piece of evidence. It's his teaching. Secondly, his life, what he did. It would have been such fun to be with Jesus. He went to a party and the wine ran out. So he said, go and get those jars, bath water, and start pouring it out for the guests. And they started pouring it out and it came out as the best wine yet. I don't drink wine, but, you know, Shadow Nerve de Pap apparently is apparently a good one. Imagine that's what they were drinking. Is that a wine? I don't know. Not just his miracles, but his love for the marginalised. He fed the hungry healing the sick, ultimately laying down his life for us. Jesus said in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, than to lay his life down for his friends. Then his character has impressed millions of people who wouldn't even call themselves Christians. Time magazine described Jesus as the most persistent symbol of purity selflessness and love in the history of humanity. His enemies could find no fault and his friends who knew him really well said, this guy is without sin. I often think the real test of character is when we're under pressure. And Jesus, when he was being tortured, said about his torturers, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then his fulfillment of prophecy. No one else in the history of the world has had a whole collection of books written about them before they were born. Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies, 29 of them in a single day. 
Well, you might say, maybe he got hold of the Old Testament. He read about all these prophecies and he thought, right, I'd better go around and fulfilling all of these, right? The problem about that is just the sheer number of them. And humanly speaking, there's many that he had no control over. See, the exact manner of his death was prophesied. The place of his burial was prophesied. His resurrection was prophesied. Even the place of his birth was prophesied. You know, reading through, oh, I'm supposed to be born in Bethlehem? That's too late, isn't it? And then his conquest of death. This is the cornerstone of Christianity. It's so relevant to every single person here because statistically speaking, one in one die. That's true. One in one die. There was a headline in The Onion, a satirical magazine, world death rate holding steady at 100%. (laughs) That's the reality. You know, the Victorians, not these Victorians that live in this state, but the ones a few, few years ago, used to talk a lot about death, but they never talked about sex. We talk a lot about sex, but don't talk about death. It's kind of just something you don't mention. Even in hospitals now, they try to avoid using the word death. I heard one hospital say they, uh, where they said, you must never use the word death. They had a politically correct way of describing it. Negative patient care outcome. <laughs> I mean, I do a lot of funerals. And it's amazing how many people can't bring them to say the word death or died. They try and gloss over it or use nice language like they've moved on, they've passed away. They, so many people just don't come to terms with the reality of death. But people die nevertheless. And when you go to a funeral and the coffin goes into the ground, it looks absolutely final. And it is, unless death has been conquered. Unless when Jesus died and was buried and was raised to life. If he was, then there is hope beyond this life. But is it just wishful thinking? Well, it is, unless there's evidence. What is the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus? First of all, his absence from the tomb. No one has ever satisfactorily explained why Jesus' body was not there on the first Easter day. People have come up with all sorts of explanations. The authorities stole the body. Well, in that case, why don't they just produce it when everyone is saying that Jesus had been seen? They couldn't. What about when the disciples heard that Jesus had been raised from the dead? They ran to the tomb and when they got to the tomb, they looked in and what they found was the grave clothes of Jesus, that they were still there. The only valuable thing for a robber to steal was still there. The only valuable thing. And and these grave clothes had collapsed like a caterpillar's cocoon when the butterflies vanished. And the piece that had been around his head had been folded and put in another place. And it says when they saw that, they believed. 
So not only his absence from the tomb, then his presence with the disciples. Jesus was seen on several occasions, on one occasion by more than 500 people, nearly 10 times the number of people here in this room. All saw him on the same occasion. Now people might say it was a hallucination. You know, hallucination does occur amongst highly strung, highly imaginative, very nervous people or people who are sick or on drugs. That's a reality. Hallucination does occur. But the disciples don't fit any of those categories. They were cynics like Thomas, who didn't believe. They were tough fishermen. They were tax collectors. Tax collectors do not hallucinate. (laughs) And also, just think about it, how would you have a mass hallucination of 500 people seeing exactly the same hallucination? That just doesn't happen. And then there was the transformation of the disciples. Here was a group of people depressed, disillusioned, and suddenly they're going around saying, we've seen Jesus, he really is alive. Most of the disciples died pretty horrific deaths as a result of their beliefs. They were crucified, they were beheaded, they were tortured. And all they had to say was, no, 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 no. Actually, it's not true. We didn't really see him. But they didn't. Those people would not have died for something they would not have known was true. But they knew it was true because they'd seen the risen Jesus. And as a result, this movement... It's a movement without precedent in the history of the world, swept the whole known world. And it has no parallel. And it's still happening. You know, there are 2,300 million Christians in the world today of every ethnicity, every continent, every nationality, every economic, social and intellectual background. They all speak of this encounter with the risen Jesus. So when we look at what Jesus claimed about himself, the first part of the argument, it's clear that Jesus did claim to be a man whose identity was God. Was he deluded? Was he a fraud? When you look at, when when I look at the evidence of his teaching, the things that he did, his character, his fulfillment of prophecy, his resurrection, it seems absurd, illogical, unbelievable to say he was insane or a fraud. On the other hand, it provides the strongest possible supporting evidence that what Jesus said about himself was true. Throughout my life, Jesus has met me where I was. As a child, he met me there in my understanding as a child. When I was a teenager, he met me there as my world and my understanding of it was growing. And as an adult, Jesus continues to meet me right where I am. Since that time, my teens, I've never wavered from knowing that the Bible is true and that Jesus is who he says he is. And it has changed my life. I once worked with a guy who was brought up as Catholic. And we were talking about life and faith. And he said this to me. He said, I just go to Mass at Easter and Christmas, but I live the way I want. When I'm old and in my hospital bed, that's when I'll get serious with God. And I thought that's so sad. 
that he has not had a genuine encounter with Jesus. All he had was religion, an insurance policy for the afterlife is what he called it. You see, when you have a real encounter with Jesus, it changes your life forever. Of course, it's not always easy. Of course, there are ups and downs. Of course, I mess up. But I've found that it really is true. Jesus really is who he claimed to be. Jesus really did rise from the dead. There really is hope beyond this life. And this encounter totally changed my life and can change yours too. Let me pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, we indeed thank you for your Son. And Lord, we thank you that there is so much evidence about Jesus, about who he is, both what he said about himself and what other evidence there is to support who he is. And Lord, we thank you that he came with forgiveness at his heart, at his core being, and that through his love for all of us, Lord, he gave his life so that we could have a sure and certain hope about our resurrection and uniting with him that is to come. Lord, we do thank you that by your grace that you stepped out of heaven into this world to meet us where we're at. And Lord, I pray that each one of us would have a genuine encounter with Jesus, if we haven't already. And I pray that, Lord, that genuine encounter with Jesus is something that would, would happen daily as we are so thankful for the good news, the gospel, that, Lord, you have saved us from our sin and you've given us a new life and a new hope for eternity. So may we walk strongly and boldly and confidently in that, I pray. Amen.